Hello again, everyone. This is Warren and here with Jason again. And we are actually going to be wrapping up our Standing Firm series today. And so we'll have more to share on what's going to come after this, after today. But we're going to be looking at, at some of Philippians 4 in our last Standing Firm podcast today. So good morning, Jason. How are you? Good morning. Doing great. It's been, we've had some really good weather lately and uh, it's nice to be able to step outside in the backyard and just kind of hang out back there and, and enjoy the the nice weather, the mild weather, and the um, and the sunny sky. I've I've really been getting a lot of uh, blessing out of out of that stuff the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah. We're going to attempt uh, our second backyard camping night of the quarantine time tonight. Yeah, the the first one ended with both kids going inside, deciding they did not want to sleep in the tent. At which point, I of course followed. So, do you have any anticipation that this one will be any different? I I don't really, but they assure me they have promised that it will be. All right, we'll see how that goes. But we'll see how it goes. We'll see what I have to report on that in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so as I said, we're gonna we're gonna finish up with Philippians four today. And there's a lot in Philippians 4 that we could get into in discussion, but some of it is kind of recap, but I think there's some, some good stuff for us to get into as well. And so for the purpose of our podcast today, I'm going to read Philippians 4, 1 through 13, which I think breaks down kind of nicely into to three sections. And, and so I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll just kind of start at the beginning of the chapter and and work our way through it, and um, and see what we see what we find here in Paul's words. So, beginning in Philippians four one, like I said, I'll read four one through thirteen. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Suntike to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whether you have learned or whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you at last renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Okay, so we ended the reading there with perhaps the most well-known or most shared verse in Philippians, Philippians 4.13, and we'll come back and we'll tackle that one in a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I want, to, I want to start at the beginning of this chapter for a minute, Jason, because there's this section of chapter four, is, it basically reads like the conclusion you know, of a letter. Um, he, he makes some personal remarks, kind of gives some recapping of, of kind of the thrust of the book that he's been talking about in the middle verses there. And then those last few verses, 10 through 13, are basically a thank you note for, for the support, for the financial support that the church in Philippi has been able to, to share with, with Paul and his you know, ministry companions. And, and so very much a, a kind of con- concluding remarks section, which is, I think, what kind of holds, holds all this chapter together. And at the beginning, I, I think it's at least interesting to point out, he, he references several names here and seems to reference a specific situation with Euodia and Suntike, and which I've got their names written down phonetically because otherwise I would not know how to pronounce them at all. <laughs> Not not your Mary or your Rebecca Bible names, right? Yeah, um, but but he references the the situation between the two of them, and obviously, to draw any exact sort of applications out of this situation, you'd have to be making a lot of assumptions because we just obviously do not have enough information to do so. But what I think is is interesting and, and probably good to, to point out and to look at is that Paul references many times in the course of his writings the, the work and the contribution and the teachings and the leadership of women in these churches. And, and I think it becomes easy to overlook all those references if we only read Paul's letters through this lens of him telling women to be silent. And I think sometimes that that one part of Paul's writings can dominate, can cause us to miss many of these opportunities, other other chances where he's talking about the work of women. And and yeah, we, we don't know anything about Euodia or Suntike or their roles or what the if there's a conflict between them or if they're simply preaching different things or they're causing division or we, we, we just don't know. Um, or maybe... He's simply wanting them to encourage them, and, and because they've been going through a difficult time, as they've been trying to to lead and and you know pastor this church for all we know. Um, but I I do think it's at least interesting that that if anyone is kind of struggling to see them and to see how they're described here as sort of a leadership role within this church, that if you replaced their names with men's names, we would just assume that these were two strong, prominent, influential figures in this church. And, and so I think, you know, we, we should at least think about that and consider that and look at it in, in the context of, of the many times over the course of his writings that, that Paul holds up the contributions of women in these churches and, and calls them co-laborers and co-workers and, and all of those things throughout his writings. That is just, I don't, I don't want us to, to skip over that part and get to the other part 
just because, well, we don't know a lot of stuff here, so let's kind of skip through it. Uh, I at least want us to kind of pause there at the beginning to recognize their, their names and, and what it seems like are significant contributions to the work of the church here. Yeah, he, he calls them, he says, um, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So, I mean, we, we could probably waste a lot of time, uh, you know, parsing out what, what exactly he means by contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. But I, it's very clear that these women have had a role in Paul's ministry, that they are not, uh, you know, to kind of throw back to, to my history, they're not simply, uh, they're, they're not only just baking the casseroles and, you know, uh, running children's church, you know, that they are yeah. contending along alongside Paul for the cause of the gospel. And you think about, what exactly was Paul doing for the gospel? What if somebody was going alongside Paul? That was actually a pretty dangerous and ambitious and um, and in many ways all-consuming activity. Yeah. Right. I, I don't see anywhere in Paul's ministry, either reflected in Acts or in his letters, where contending by his side for the gospel would be a meek. Or, um, or, or, you know, peaceful endeavor. That there's a there's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of right. of difficulty that that would involve. And to put them on that level again, we don't know the circumstances of their life or exactly, you know, precisely what she what they're doing in Philippi. Uh, but I I can't read, uh, you know, that third verse, verse three without uh imagining them and without thinking of them as like you said the you know some pretty influential strong leaders in the church um you know at least strong enough for Paul to say hey we got to get these these two to get along you know or we need to help these two people um in whatever their struggle is right now because we need them you know he's not saying right. shut them out they're you know, they're a cancer upon the church or they're, you know, causing too much trouble. So we need to do away with them. Uh, you know, that, that would have been a very easy thing for him to do. Um, but he doesn't do that. And, and I think that's, that's important and, you know, worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think especially given the, the context and the origins of the church in Acts that, I mean, uh, the church in Philippi, which we read about in Acts, it's in Acts uh, 16, I, I think, where um, we kind of read about Paul coming into Philippi and, and the first people that he goes to and kind of begins talking to in Philippi is this uh, group of women who are basically having a prayer meeting, Bible study kind of a thing, as we would call it. And, and Lydia is the first one that he develops sort of a relationship with. She invites Paul and Silas into her home. And then we have this, this kind of famous story with the, uh, the jailer in Philippi when, when Paul and Silas are, are put in jail. And we have that famous story. But then even at the conclusion of that story, it says Paul and Silas go back to Lydia's house where they're meeting with the other brothers and sisters. And so it's this group of women who are the kind of impetus for the, the beginning of this movement in Philippi. And then the early church there seems to be meeting, meeting in Lydia's house. I don't think it's wrong to say that they are... 
the, that that Lydia and perhaps other these other women that were meeting in her house are the founders of the Philippi Church, you know, along with Paul and Silas. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I do think that's something good for us to take note of, and um, I think it's it's a it's a detail here. Again, we've we've said it. There's just obviously a lot that we don't know, but but I do think there's. Um, it's good to at least note as we go through this. So that's how this chapter starts, addressing some, some kind of personal stuff there. Um, and then the, he, he gets into the, that next section there, which is basically, uh, as I kind of alluded to, I think sort of a recap. Verses 4 through four through 9, to me, are basically kind of a summation of, of everything else that Paul's been talking about. And... You know, we, we've talked before, again, because this is all kind of, this is a, a repeat of stuff he's already addressed. There he says, rejoice in the Lord always. This is a concept he's continued to talk about throughout this letter, this idea of rejoicing. And it seems like he has kind of built on this this plea and this call to rejoice throughout the letter. He started out with kind of calls to rejoice and then calls to rejoice in the Lord. And now he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Which again, it's important to, to keep that within the context of the whole letter, that it's not just that he mentions rejoicing twice here. These are the fifth and sixth times he specifically said rejoice over the course of this letter. And, and again, keeping in context, keeping in mind the context of, of Paul sitting in jail saying this, this is, is just a recurring theme that he's wanting them to be aware of and, and of the, the peace that is available through finding the way to rejoice in the Lord no matter your circumstances. And, and I think what he comes back to next there is, is almost a, a kind of, okay, here's how you can do that. Um, you know, consider the things that you're thinking about. Think about and, and consider and ponder things that are noteworthy, that are, that are true, that are noble, that are pure, that are lovely, that are admirable, that are praiseworthy. Uh, spend your time thinking about and meditating on those things almost that, that, that will kind of give you the ability, as I read that, to rejoice in all circumstances, which is when he then comes back to, to another concept that he's repeatedly shared throughout this letter of, of kind of looking to him as an example uh, to, to pattern themselves after. And, and so as you look at that section, again, I, I see that kind of as a summation of, of everything he's talked about in this letter. Is there any one particular part of that, that that kind of sticks with you after kind of going through this whole book now? Uh, I think probably what stands out to me is the way that he, you know, repeats himself uh, and and just calls him out as repeating himself. Um, I think whenever you see somebody do that, um, you know, they're they're wanting to emphasize something here. And I think that's something worth paying special attention to. So verses four, uh, or verse four is, you know, again, one of those verses that we quote a lot, that we, we read a lot and we, you know, put it on bumper stickers and, and, uh, wooden plaques that we hang in the house. Um, but rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And it, it, has to be noted that this is being written by a man who's currently in prison um, as he's writing this. Um, And that his encouragement to the people of Philippi to rejoice, um, especially after what he just, you know, he he was just pleading with some people who are engaged in, uh, uh, in some kind of disagreement. 
Mm. Um, and so he's he's ex- exhorting them to uh, to rejoice. He, you know, he's he's saying Yodia and Suntiki, you know, help help them to agree with each other in the Lord. Um, you know, they're they're important to me. They were they've been important in my work. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So it, it tells me that they've kind of gotten caught up and maybe distracted by some of the conflict, some of the disagreement, some of the um, maybe distress that they've been experiencing um, as their, you know, the the church at that particular moment in time wasn't the most popular with the authorities and wasn't um, exactly in a safe place. Not li- certainly not like we are now. Um, but but in some ways it is similar to how we are now in the sense that there's a lot of uncertainty and there's some risk and some fear and some you know we have no idea what the future is going to hold and and it's very similar to how a lot of us feel right now in uh, in in our time of quarantine and so Paul is telling those folks in that in that place rejoice again I say it rejoice rejoice in the Lord always um, and. And, and that's what I keep coming back to here is, you know, when we're wondering, well, are we going to be able to go back to some kind of life, uh, you know, normalcy of life? And we don't know exactly what that's going to look like. If we do, you know, go back to our jobs and go back to, you know, uh, a life that isn't in social isolation or social distancing, um, you know, it's probably going to look very different. Well, how is it going to look different? I don't know. And that can be really worrisome and troublesome. Um, and it, and it, in a way, it's kind of a callback to uh, kind of what he says earlier, where he's saying, you know, that in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these uh, same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Um, so he's he's kind of calling back here in in chapter four, calling back to chapter three and and other parts of of this uh, this letter, where he's telling people to rejoice. And in chapter one, he says it's a safeguard for you. Mm-hmm. You know, turn to turn to God, not just turn to God in terms of you know. I think a lot of times when we say you know turn turn towards Jesus, turn towards the Lord, we usually mean that I think mistakenly to mean. Um, you know, do the right thing and be a godly person and a righteous person. And, uh, and I think a lot of times the implication is to allow that to be a guide for, for how you behave, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think it does miss the point if that's the only thing we see it as. And I think here he's saying it as let that be a, a, a guiding light, a, uh, a divine, um, a divine lead for where your attitude, your faith, your uh, encouragement should come from. And, and I do think that that kind of then directly leads into the next parts, you know, which, which I know you have some thoughts about, you know, later on in, in verse eight and nine. Well, I, I think it leads into that part. I think it also leads into, to that next section there beginning in verse 10, which, which I want to get to here, right. here now, because I, I, I want us to spend some time there, but I do think you're right that, that, that concept of rejoicing, and specifically as he's now kind of built up that concept, concept rejoicing in the Lord always, 
is the thread that ties this whole book together, I think. That so if if you're suffering and you don't know what your future holds, rejoice. If you're tempted to put confidence in your own abilities and ego and and achievements, then rejoice in the Lord. If you've got conflict with other people or disagreement or you're distracted by by maybe other stuff that you shouldn't be distracted by find a way to redirect your thoughts and 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 think about things that are good and holy and pure and rejoice in the lord it's like that that seems to be the common thread that's worked its way through everything paul is addressing in this book that it all comes back to paul's desire to see people rejoicing in the lord and and you could take that in in countless different directions for what it would mean for us, um, but that they would all come back to this idea that wherever you find yourself in, whatever situation you find yourself in, if you can find a way to to rejoice in that, then um, then then you're doing something good, and and you're gonna you're gonna help yourself. Well, and and I think it helps um, uh, it helps to protect us against the the depression and the anxiety and the frustration and the fear that comes from assuming that we have to have all of the answers that we have to know exactly what we are uh uh what what we are doing to alleviate the situation yeah uh, there are some situations we we really don't have much power uh to alleviate or or whatever power we do have is is unclear uh and and i think that this is the antidote to being drugged down by that fear by that reality is if you rejoice in the lord then no matter what happens you're going to have that light within you you're going to have that reassurance that uh that confidence that comes from that not confidence that you know what to do but confidence that god will work to the you know, for the good of his people somehow. Yeah. And I know, I know you've kind of in, in comments throughout our conversations pulled us back to the context of him being in jail. And, and I think that that is so important to remember because it's not as if Paul is, is denying the hardship or the su- suffering or the grief that is, that is just a part of life. It's not a denying of that, but if you can find a way to rejoice in that, it disarms the fear. And I, I think that's Paul's point is that, yeah, whatever situation you're in, yeah, deal with it, work hard through it, figure it out, it's going to be hard. But if you can find a way to rejoice in that, it's going to have a disarming quality over those those other disabilitating emotions and, and feelings. Um, okay, so all that leads us, I want us, I want us to spend some time on, on 10 through 13. Because I think, as I said, I think Philippians 4.13 is probably the most used the most quoted verse in this whole book and you know last week I talked about a verse that I thought was the most underrated verse in this book but I think that that verse 13 here is not only the most used verse but probably the most misused verse in all of Philippians and I think you could even make a case if we were doing kind of a hot take debate show um, I think you can make a case this is the most misused verse in all of Paul's writings (laughs) Um, and so let's look at verse 13 in the context of what Paul is saying. So this is, you're getting towards the end of the letter, and what Paul in, starts in verse 10 is basically a thank you note for, for the, the support, the financial support that the church in Philippi is giving him. 
And basically what he says is, hey guys, thanks for this money. I know you've been wanting to support me before. You didn't have the opportunity to do so. Now you have. Uh, I appreciate what you've been able to give me. But then he says, but hey, I want you to know, this is basically the, the equivalent, I think, from Paul of, I'm not doing this for the money. Like, I appreciate the, the stuff that you're being able to provide, but, but the accumulation of stuff isn't the point. And it's not why you're giving us this stuff. It's not why we need it. Um, and so he says, uh, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And so the point of that verse of 13 seems to be, it's a summation of, of that whole paragraph where Paul is saying, look, I've, I've had times where I've you know, had great wealth, when I've been in plenty, when I didn't lack for anything, and I've been in times where I was broke and, and didn't know what, where I was going to get my next meal or if I was going to live through this situation, and everywhere in between. And I've learned to be content in all of those circumstances, and I am able to do that because I am in Christ, which again is a concept he's been talking about in this letter. And, and so it's this idea that I, I can do all of this. I can be content no matter the situation um, because of my place in Christ and because he is where I draw my strength. And because of that, I can be content no matter what is going on around me. I can rejoice no matter what is going on around me. And, and I'd be curious to hear your take on this, Jason, because I'll, I'll kind of share some more about my thoughts in a minute. But that seems to be almost the, the antithesis to how we use and often hear verse 13 referenced. I hear this as a Christian way of saying that I don't need to take responsibility for preparation. I don't need to take responsibility for a realistic assessment of my situation or of my abilities because I can do everything. And, and actually, I think that's a problem that a lot of the Bible translation makes is that it, it, a lot of them say, I can do everything mm. uh, through, you know, through God who strengthens me. In fact, the, the... Are all things. I can do all things. Sure. Well, and, and, well, I think all, everything is even more problematic than all things. Um, and, and there may be, maybe this is me just kind of reading into, you know, some, a semantic difference, but mm-hmm. everything is... You know, I can jump off a building and fly. I can, uh, you know, at 43 years old and out of weight, become a major league baseball player. Uh, you know, I can do everything, really everything. If you look at the Greek, the Greek for that term is panta, uh, which literally just means all things. But the, the in the Greek, the the implication is. Uh, that it really should mean all these things. So that that that's kind of an implied statement. All these things. Well, what all what things? Well, um, you know, being content. Uh, you know, in verse twelve, he says, "I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want." And then he says, "For all these things, I have the strength." in the one who strengthens me. And so what he's saying there is I can do, I can suffer for Christ. 
I can live in a way that most people would find extremely problematic and difficult. That is actually what I am able to do because of the strength I have in Christ. Yeah. It's not that I can, you know, fly or I can, uh, you know, just by the power of sheer will, you know, overcome, uh, you know, uh, overcome this, this practical obstacle that just, that doesn't actually have any uh, way around it. <laughs> you know, Paul, what Paul is saying here is there's a lot of, it's a mindset that he's really speaking to that I can endure all sorts of abuse and, uh, and mental and emotional challenges that come from poverty, that come from hunger, that come from imprisonment. That's, those are the things that I can endure because of God that gives me strength. Um, and I think, I think you're right that it, it, get, it often gets flipped on its head, that, that I will be successful in... Uh, in a humanistic sort of way uh, because God will give me the strength for that success. Yeah. Um, And I don't, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think what Paul is saying, like you said, is the opposite that God is going to give me the strength to endure through difficulty, that God is going to give me the strength to rejoice in him where few, if any other people would be able to find joy. Yeah. That's, what, that's the kind of strength that God is giving him in that moment. And even the opposite of that, that he's going to give me the strength to remain connected to him in times of, of plenty, when I might be tempted to think, I've done this right. on my own, or I don't need God now. Yes. That, that it takes strength in both of those situations to remain connected to God. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that end of it, but you're absolutely right, that, that it is, uh, in many ways, it's, it's probably more difficult to remain connected with God you know, in times of plenty and in times yeah, of... Yeah, when I feel I don't need feeling him. ...feeling satiated. Yeah, exactly. I, one of the most remarkable uh, uh, examples of that I saw was uh, when I was in college, I went on a mission trip to uh, Seattle, Washington, where we worked with the homeless of Seattle. And as part of that, we worked with a, uh, a shelter that served food and had a worship service every night. And the worship service and the um uh it generated such immense response from the homeless population there they were just incredibly um they were they were being able to rejoice with god in a way that surprised me for people who had so little mm-hmm. um especially compared to me and my peers uh who were there who were mostly white, up you know, upper middle class, middle class um, uh, college students who really did not have uh, m- much of a care in the world relative to these folks, mm-hmm. um, and and their response to the message uh, at that mission was incredible to me, and I, I think that they had a much stronger present uh, understanding of the role of God in their life and their dependency, their, their need for God in their life. Then I think a lot of us who went to, uh, went on that mission trip may have felt ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a common response from us as Americans. When we find ourselves in those circumstances, Mm -hmm. I've certainly had, had a similar experience. And, and I think that that just points out our tendency to rejoice in 
stuff or worldly things or put our confidence in worldly things that when we see someone who doesn't have that and we're surprised that they could still kind of have this joyful, you know, faith about them, I think it, it points out some things about ourselves if we're, if we're willing to, <laughs> to look there and allow ourselves to kind of go inwardly with that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've, I hadn't really thought, I hadn't connected this to, to this verse until you, something you were saying made me think of this, that, you know, as Paul matures, he becomes... Um, he becomes pretty aware of his own limitations when he says, you know, I've, I've pleaded with God, I think he says three times, right, to take away this thorn in the flesh. And, yeah. and, um, and, and God basically said, my grace is, you know, sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And, and so, again, that if you have this concept of this verse as God's going to give me the strength to do anything that I want to do, that is directly just um, – you can't hold that thought alongside this thought when Paul says, I pleaded with God to take this away from me because I thought I could do more without it, and he said no. And, and so you, you, you've got to hold those two things together there, I think. And I think verses 10 through 13 here are just – I think they're the perfect case study for why it's so important not to just pick one verse out of context and 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 use that without without considering anything else around it, uh, because it does kind of become this this rubber stamp for us to say whatever I want to do and whatever I put my mind to, God's going to give me the strength and the ability to do it. Which is just not what Paul's saying. And the danger in that there are many dangers in that, but I think one of them becomes if I don't then accomplish everything that I want to in life. I've got an easy scapegoat in God to attach that to and say it's God's fault that I didn't achieve the things I wanted to in life or get as far as I wanted to. It's God's fault I'm not as wealthy as I wanted to be or, you know, on and on and on we could go. And we can attach some of those things to, to God in, in ways that are just problematic mm-hmm. for a lot of different reasons. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that the more that we, well, the more that we look at the Bible as a whole, the more that we look at each book, each letter as a, um, as a complete whole, rather than looking at individual verses and chapters, I think the more you see that in pretty much every book of the Bible, right? Right. With the possible exception of something like Psalms, uh, which is, you know, by definite, by nature, a, a collection of things is that we see that if we want to really understand what is, what is God trying to tell us in these scriptures? Um, we we have to look at the context. We have to look at who is writing, who are they writing to, what are their circumstances, what is coming immediately before and immediately after. I think that's just kind of, at this point, I, I, I hope people can see that as just good Bible study technique um, and, and read this as uh, a call to have a deeper, fuller understanding of what the Bible actually is trying to tell us, not just here in Philippians, but I, I think we could probably do a better job of that anytime that we're looking at scripture is, okay, if, if a verse jumps out at us, that's great. Let's take a look at that, but let's allow our way of understanding it and interpreting it encompass the surrounding of that verse, both literally within the rest of the book, but also the surrounding you know, uh, history of that book itself as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, 
14 through 20 gives some more context. Speaking of context, kind of to, to 13 and what he's speaking at there, but we didn't. That was going to be a, a little bit of a larger chunk for us to kind of read and get into. But but for those listening and, and following along in Philippians on your own, there's there's stuff there that that Paul gets into that kind of continues this this thought of all we, that we've been talking about. Uh, and so that that brings us to the end of of, of Philippians then and. And I think, you know, especially like we said, it may have been best for us to kind of wrap up with those verses four through nine, because I do think those really give give a good uh, encapsulated summation of this book as as Paul is encouraging us to rejoice in the Lord always, to consider the things that we are thinking about, the things that we are focusing on, and and to, to look around us to see who 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 can I be um looking to as an example of what that looks like in practice and who can I be mentoring and, and bringing up behind me as, as I learn and mature in Christ and well as well. And as we continue this kind of metaphor of, and, and thinking of, of maturing as Christians and what are our lives producing and, and this idea of running the race and all those things that we've been talking about through this book. And, and again, I think we just see a lot of that pulled together there in four through nine that, that are a good summation of, of all that we've been talking about through this letter and all that I think we see Paul doing there. Yeah. And I, I like he, the way he closes this. There's, um, I have to think that there's a story behind it, but he's giving his final greetings. And in verse 22, he says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Mm. <laughs> kind of a, a little... Uh, a little interesting aside that that say you know because he's imprisoned in Rome, so that kind of leads me to think that you know that that he has people on the inside who are part of uh, a, a part of the the followers of Christ and uh, and that they're in that he's communicating to the people in Philippi that hey we have people in Caesar's household mm, yeah you know even within the most powerful uh, man in the empire. Uh, you know, Christ's work is being done. So don't give up hope. You know, keep the faith and rejoice in the Lord. That's good. Yeah, I like that. All right. Well, Jason, you want to close us out in, in prayer? And then, like I said, we'll uh, we'll have something next week. And uh, don't know, we've got a couple different things that we're looking at, but we'll we'll do something next week for the podcast. And we'll have more to share about that later. But for now, we'll, we'll close out in prayer and, and wrap up this discussion of Philippians. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the gifts that you give us, for the, um, for the sun and the sky, for the rain, for the birds, for the trees. Uh, we thank you for our homes, the roof that you put over our heads, the clothes that you clothe us with, the food that you feed us. Lord, we uh, are humbled during this time by how powerless we truly are. I, I actually thank you um, for reminding us of, uh, of how much we need to rely on you and for reminding us that it is through you that we receive all. Uh, God, I pray that you will strengthen those who are feeling weak at this moment, that you will give them the comfort of knowing that that they can endure this through you who gives them strength. I pray that you will um, give us new eyes with which to read your scripture. Give us the eyes 
that um, that come to see the fullness of your word in a way that uh, that doesn't just pick and choose little verses and and big verses for us to interpret in one way or another, but God help us to see the full message of redemption, of grace, of uh, service, and of joy uh, that you've given to us. Uh, I want to thank you for the the ability you've given us to share these words with uh, with other people. We ask that it is a blessing to them as it's been a blessing to us. Uh, and now as we as we go, may your grace be with us always. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.